Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will return to our discussion of Arab history, and properly introduce the Ummah's latest Caliph. We noted last time how and why our sources undergo a shift in tone beyond this point, and I'll be working against some doubtful or biased narrations to bring out this controversial figure. That said, let's get started with episode 18, Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan. If you've been listening to this podcast sequentially, which I hope you have, it's how I think you can get it to make the most sense, then you know that I like to begin a caliph's reign with a short look at his past up until he took the helm. I suppose it's a good thing that Muawiyah has been a regular in our narrative recently, so you are already up to date on his last few years and already have an example of the kind of disagreement we find whenever he is brought up. His childhood and reign are equally contested, and mentioning every divergent opinion or point of view quickly gets tiresome, so I'll limit myself to wherever I think it's helpful. Muawiyah was the second son of Abu Sufyan, chief of the Umayyad clan of Quraysh. After the Muslims raided his caravan and won their first battle at Badr, Abu Sufyan took effective leadership of the tribe and directed its fight against Muhammad's followers. Muawiyah's critics amplified this part of his family's history in pursuit of a the-apple-doesn't-fall-far-from-the-tree motif. And they sure have plenty of material to work with, as the Quraysh were Islam's main adversaries throughout the Prophet's lifetime. The Umayyads face a wide array of accusations, ranging from the banal to the barbarous, but Muawiyah is tainted only by association, as there isn't much that is specifically attributed to him. Proponents of the Umayyads deny any and all accounts of undue disrespect from this noble branch of the Blessed Quraysh, and they prefer narrations which say that Muawiyah had secretly converted to Islam before the rest of Mecca and had tried to convince his parents of its rightness. There are even narrations which claim that, upon seeing Muawiyah as a baby, Muhammad had exclaimed, He shall rule over all my people, and I ask God to help him rule them wisely. So just a straightforward, no-nonsense endorsement from the Prophet, and as we go on, we will see how pretty much every caliph who sought to bolster their religious legitimacy had prophecies like these reported. It's doubtful that Muawiyah had converted before the rest of his clan, or that he had ever scribed for the Prophet as some sources insist. His early years are basically a battleground around whether he could claim special religious legitimacy, either by having embraced Islam before it was the only real option left to him, or from some special relationship to the Prophet. While I don't think it's likely that the Umayyads enjoyed a genuinely positive relationship with the Prophet, it couldn't have been that bad either, as Muhammad had pardoned Abu Sufyan with the rest of his tribe after taking Mecca, and had once even sent Muawiyah to Yemen as an envoy. The first caliph, Abu Bakr, relied heavily on Quraysh, and he had no problem appointing Abu Sufyan's sons to leadership positions among the armies he sent to Syria. While the most important and influential victories there were won by the legendary general Khalid ibn al-Walid, Muawiyah is credited with wresting a few towns and cities from the Byzantines, including Beirut, where this podcast was born. Muawiyah was nothing special as a military commander, and he shone brightest when it came to administration. 
He became governor of Syria after the plague ravaged the Arab armies there during the second caliph's reign, claiming the lives of all his superiors, including his half-brother Yazid. Omar is said to have confirmed Muawiyah in his position during the second caliph's only trip out of the peninsula, and there's this nice narration which I'm somewhat skeptical of, but thought it would be worth relaying anyway. It says that Muawiyah held a sort of military parade to welcome the caliph, and the pomp of the event horrified the austere Omar. When he met the governor amid the whole spectacle, he chided him for its extravagance and for living among the locals in luxury instead of staying with his troops on the edges of the desert. In a low whisper, Muawiyah asked the caliph to beware what he said in public, for the Byzantines surely had eyes and ears everywhere as they still coveted these lands, which they'd governed for so long and until so recently. Muawiyah went on to explain that the show of strength he'd put together was a message meant for Constantinople's spies. Finally, he said that he had no personal desire for the trappings of wealth which surrounded him, but that he had taken on this lifestyle for the benefit of the locals, who saw in it a closer embodiment of the governance that they were accustomed to. By the time Muawiyah was done, Omar's anger had turned to bemusement, and the caliph laughed and marveled to a companion at the Umayyad's cleverness, asking his friend to take special note of how Muawiyah took care to argue reasonably although he knew his audience understood nothing of the matters which he discussed and could not argue back. It's on this penetrating bit of critique that our dubious narration ends, and I especially like how it uses the second caliph to both criticize and vindicate Muawiyah's proneness to majesty. Ambitions aside, his competence as governor is only questioned by his fiercest detractors, and Muawiyah's leadership comes off as energetic and imaginative. He married into the local tribes, and in doing so created powerful ties with Syria's most important Qahtanis, who had lived there long before its recent conquest. He kept the Byzantines on the back foot by organizing regular raids into their lands, which had the benefit of keeping his armies sharp and his commanders happy. He commissioned the building of a navy which went on to conquer most of the islands in the Mediterranean. Sure, he was empowered greatly during the reign of his kin, but there's no denying that Muawiyah was a cut above the rest of the Arab leadership. I think we've already covered enough of his career as governor to leave things here and return to our narrative, which we had put a pin in after Al-Hassan had publicly relinquished his claim to leadership in Kufa, hoping to encourage its people to unite under their new Umayyad Caliph. Well, Muawiyah gave a speech of his own that same night. There are multiple versions of it, but the gist is that he addressed the Kufans haughtily and humiliated them in front of the Syrian troops. He faulted them for not supporting him all along, and walked back all the promises he had made them, saying that they were only meant to, quote, quench your abominable greed, extinguish your mutiny, and end this senseless war, unquote. He concluded with a new promise he vowed to keep. Anyone who did not pledge their allegiance within three days would be branded an enemy of Islam, never to be pardoned. This speech was much more effective at motivating people to submit than at Hassan's, and perhaps more importantly, it made the Syrian armies proud to see Muawiyah's total domination of the enemy they'd fought against for almost five years now. They must have been reassured to find him treating the Iraqis with distrust and contempt, as that meant they didn't need to worry about them as a rival power base. Even though he no longer had to contend with another claimant to the title of caliph, Muawiyah still had some sources of insubordination to address. For example, now that he was in charge of Iraq, Muawiyah had to deal with the threat the Hashemites had repeatedly swatted away. 
His shaming of the men in Kufa had swelled the ranks of the Karajites, and within a few weeks about a thousand of them were ready to attack the new caliph. Remember, Karajites were those who willingly seceded from the community, and these latest developments disillusioned many with the caliphate and what they could expect from it going forward. This uprising would not have been a problem if Muawiyah still had the 60,000 troops he had brought with him, but most of those were already on their way back to Syria, while the rest were en route to subdue Basra as its tribes had refused to submit. Muawiyah only had his personal guard of elite cavalry at hand, and he sent these two or three thousands to crush the rebels, but they were no match for the desperate Karajites and were promptly beaten back despite their advantage in numbers. Following this upset, Muawiyah delivered another threatening speech to the Kufans, telling them that if they did not take responsibility and deal with their traitorous skin, he would brand them all enemies of Islam. The Karajites did not expect the Iraqi tribes to obey their new caliph so readily, and when they met them on the battlefield they tried convincing them that the two shared the same enemy in the Umayyad. Their appeals fell on deaf ears, however, and after a short but deadly engagement, the people of Kufa saved Muawiyah from what would have been the shortest stint as caliph ever. It's worth noting that the repeated military defeats they suffered did not keep the Karajites from becoming a real thorn in the caliph's side, and their ranks would continue to grow whenever Arabs found reason to secede from the Ummah. Despite the fact that the Hashemite al-Hassan was genuine in his withdrawal from politics, his clan's fiercest partisan, Qais ibn Abada, continued his resistance to the new Umayyad caliph. Though he was a capable leader, with considerable religious legitimacy and a modest army still at his disposal, Qais's unruliness did not threaten Muawiyah in the least, and instead of engaging him in combat, the caliph sent him several messengers reminding Qais that without a Hashemite vying for leadership, he had nobody to champion. The point proved irrefutable, and eventually Qais pledged to Muawiyah in person before returning to his native Medina. Basra's mini-rebellion was equally short-lived, and the ruthless Busur bin Abi Arta conquered the city without having to deploy too much of his trademark brutality in November of 661. By that time, Muawiyah had already left Kufa, not for the traditional capital of Medina, but to Damascus, the city he had ruled for decades and from which he intended to continue presiding over Syria. Soon afterwards, he appointed new governors to his provinces. Or maybe not so new. We've been around for a while, and so you'll find them to be a familiar cast of characters. For all that he had done in service of Muawiyah's cause, Amr ibn al-As was rewarded with the governorship of Egypt, a position he would hold until he passed away two years later. Muawiyah's decision to rule from Syria meant that someone was now needed to govern the peninsula, and the caliph installed two of his clan's most prominent members in charge of the cities of Mecca and Medina. It was important to use renowned Umayyads for these positions, as the people there were accustomed to the caliph's proximity, and in tribal Arabia esteemed kin were the next best thing. A family member you haven't met yet, Khalid ibn al-As, was put in charge of Mecca, and for the specially sensitive position of overseeing the subdued but resentful ex-capital Medina, Muawiyah chose none other than Marwan ibn al-Hakam, a man whom many there still held responsible for his role in the tragedy of his cousin Uthman. This was a deliberately confrontational choice, and with it Muawiyah hoped to both assert Umayyad control over the city's unsympathetic population and to goad any of its latent opposition into trying something stupid. The provocative and uncompromising stance was deemed particularly necessary in Medina, 
where Al-Hassan lived among his clan and several close supporters. The Iraqi cities of Kufa and Basra were clearly going to be the most difficult for Muawiyah to govern, both since they had fought him the longest and because of the growing popularity of Karajag thought. The Umayyad Abdullah bin Amr was put back in charge of Basra, and the new governor wasted no time in sending his armies out to ex-Sasanian land for plunder and tribute, hoping this would at least occupy its men and maybe one day unite them. For the city of Kufa, Muawiyah picked Al-Mughira bin Shu'bah, whom you may recall was one of the four Duhat. We are told that Mughira had maintained his neutrality during the Qurayshi showdown between Adi and Muawiyah, staying in his hometown of Ta'if while the two figured it out. We're not told why he was chosen to govern the city. Muawiyah had plenty of kin or loyalists for these influential positions, but he may have reasoned that Kufa was too prone to unrest and had to be dealt with carefully. Al-Mughira proved to be an excellent choice, and he kept Kufa's persistent undercurrent of opposition from ever becoming a threat to the new order. There is a set of narrations about a Karajite rebellion in Kufa which brings out a little of the dynamics of the time, so it's worth touching upon. The narrations bring Al-Mughira out as an even-tempered governor who gave the different personalities and ideologies in Kufa the room they needed to exist as long as they kept the peace. The two he had to watch out for the most were remnants of Hashemite loyalists who resented Muawiyah's caliphate, and of course, those with Karajite tendencies. Instead of fighting against both, the governor sufficed with counseling them that the matter had already been settled in favor of the Umayyads, advising them to get on the same page as everybody else already. When the Karajites grew in number during his second or third year in charge, he convinced their tribes to turn them out, which forced the broadly aimless band of malcontents to coalesce behind a single man, whom they now hailed as their caliph. This was a fanciful but dangerous claim, and rather than chasing them around the Iraqi desert or asking Damascus for help, we are told Al-Mughira spoke with tribes he knew had Hashemite leanings and inflamed their passions by reminding them how the Karajites had robbed Ali of both his victory and his life, finally allowing them to pursue the nascent Karajite insurgency themselves. It all ended perfectly for the cunning Dahiyah when in their final battle over a year later, the leaders of both of these mutinous movements died facing one another in combat, dissipating their power bases and leaving the governor in complete control of the city. These events are pretty well attested to in our sources, and the main takeaway here is that Al-Mughira dealt wisely with Kufa's various opposition groups and used them against one another. Going back to Muawiyah's governors, I wanted to note a commonality they shared, one you may have already picked up on. All of these men had been governors under the third Caliph Uthman, which is important because it played to Muawiyah's promises of punishing Uthman's killers and restoring the Ummah. It was his platform, the main reason he offered for his legitimacy for why he had the right to go to war with the Prophet's cousin, that it fell to him to avenge his kin and take back for his clan what they had been robbed of and then restore things to how they had been before the fitna. Muawiyah leveraged the same reasoning when mandating that Ali bin Abi Talib be cursed after prayers in mosques throughout the land, seeking to perpetuate the idea that the Hashemites had tried to usurp power and had been justly thwarted. When he was told that many were leaving their mosques hastily after concluding their prayers in order to not have to listen to what they found to be objectionable, the caliph instructed that curses be read before prayers as well. This non-stop cursing of Ali did cause tensions, of course, 
and again I believe it was designed to provoke Hashemite sympathizers to impulsive action. And after some of those who refused to curse Ali publicly were punished, most started going along with it. Busur bin Abi Arta, the commander of Muawiyahs with an especially bloody reputation, was sent to Medina to brutalize anyone judged to have been a sympathizer of Uthman's killers, and we are told that the city's new governor Marwan regularly denounced or taunted Al-Hassan in public. This insistence on shaming the Hashemites and the aggressive posturing in Medina where Al-Hassan resided provide us with enough evidence to assert that Muawiyah still perceived a political threat from the Hashemites, one he tried preempting by working public sentiment against it. The Caliph had a lot more to deal with than all this internal stuff I've been focusing on, of course, but I want to get it all out of the way so that we can later discuss the kinds of decisions Muawiyah makes after he feels securely in command. To that end, there is one more early shift within the Caliphate that I need to stumble through. The story of how Muawiyah got the fourth Dahiyah, Ziyad, who had been on the Hashemite side during the first fitna, to become one of his most capable governors. The thing is, I already find narrations with a single Dahiyah doubtful, since they tend to be suspiciously prophetic. Those with two Dahiyahs are so full of witty exchanges that they come off more as rhetorical showdowns within a famed historical context than a straightforward account of the past. This collection of stories where one Dahiyah sends a second to talk to a third for him are a mixture of both, and other more subtle distortions I will allude to, so I'll try to keep all this brief. The last time Ziyad came up in our narrative, he was a deputy governor in Basra, and his experience with tribal politics had helped him navigate and rebuff Muawiyah's attempt at flipping the city to his side. He had since gone to Pars, sent by Ali in pursuit of some Kurdish brigands. After dealing with them, Ziyad had heard of Muawiyah's triumph, and promptly fortified himself in one of the province's impregnable fortresses. Back in Basra, his children were taken hostage by Busr for a short while, but after a public outcry and a brush with death, the young men were released. Ziyad was then accused of embezzlement and his cousin was tortured to extract confessions of guilt, but again, nothing came of it. I was surprised to find a description of waterboarding in Al-Tabari, who says that three times a silk rag was placed over the man's head and doused with running water until he fainted. After the failure of these violent tactics, Al-Mughira proposed to the caliph that he be sent to reason with Ziyad. They belonged to the same tribe, and Ziyad had previously served Al-Mughira as an assistant of sorts, so the two had a good relationship. Allow me to paraphrase. Ziyad basically said he wasn't sure he could ever trust Muawiyah, and Al-Mughira suggested that one way to ensure the Umayyad wouldn't turn on him would be to take on his family name. See, Ziyad was an unclaimed son, and his patronymic literally translates to Ziyad, son of his father. So all Muawiyah had to do was confirm that Ziyad was the son of Abu Sufyan, making Ziyad his half-brother. Depending on who you ask, this was either already an open secret or a suspiciously convenient fabrication, and again, it doesn't help that the main characters are all clever to hat. But whatever the case may be, the formal adoption took place before too long. This new inclusion into the Umayyad line ruffled lots of noble feathers and generated a serious amount of bad press for Muawiyah, particularly within his now all-important clan. And so Ziyad went from being a, to use the polite Arab phrasing, son of his father, to the caliph's half-brother, and then to his latest governor of Basra. 
Despite its military success, Abdullah bin Amr's strategy of keeping the troops occupied with marching through Persia for tribute didn't go far enough in staunching local opposition to the Umayyads. Basra was plagued by a lawlessness which made it difficult to govern, exacerbating the unruliness of an already defiant Iraq. Ziyad's first speech to its residents was so eloquent that it has lived on in Arab memory, somewhat infamous for being the first public address since the advent of Islam to not open with a prayer or appeal to God. Ziyad's oratory skills are roundly praised in the sources, and one compliment I especially liked said that Ziyad was the only man whose eloquence blossomed more beautifully the longer he spoke. Ziyad delivered on the stern warnings he made in his first speech as governor, and his leadership is credited with quickly transforming Basra into the safest, most law-abiding version of itself there had ever been. The sources marvel at how under Ziyad one could drop something in the streets and find it hours later undisturbed, making it clear that the Arabs had until then been strict adherents of the ancient code of you snooze, you lose. Ziyad initiated a curfew, punishing anyone who stayed out beyond nightfall when most crimes occurred, and he applied his punishments rigorously and without exception. Between his iron fist and Al-Mughira's more flexible approach in Kufa, the two duhat kept Iraq securely fixed in the Umayyad orbit of power. Okay, we're finally done with the internal machinations, and I know I spent a whole lot of time telling you about this one governor, but Ziyad will be influential, and besides we ought to appreciate the level of detail in the sources as it will sadly not accompany us throughout Muawiyah's long reign. These first three years account for almost 40% of what Al-Tabari has on him. It's partly due to this lack of good information on the Caliph himself that we have to rely on accounts about his governors and contemporaries to really bring him out. Muawiyah seemed to have a practical conception of what good governance looked like, and in pursuit of it he trusted capable duhat like Amr ibn al-As and Mughira ibn Shab and Ziyad now bin Abi Sufyan. That he preferred these resourceful men to say, military leaders, or moral paragons, reveals how Muawiyah thought of the Arabs as a population to be managed and not inspired. In pursuit of his goals, he mostly relied on his loyalists, and he asked other Arabs for no more than their conformity. I want to return to a comment I opened with, about how narrations concerning Muawiyah are doubtful or biased. If you found this episode to be reasonably balanced, I feel like I should let you know that the classical sources I'm working with are far more hostile to Muawiyah than I have let on. I wasn't trying to editorialize or anything, but I've developed a sense for, let's call them, theatrical narrations. Ones where the rhetoric is geared towards communicating a sentiment instead of historical fact. For example, there's one about how on his deathbed Amr ibn al-As lamented that in his heart he had always known Ali was the one whom Muhammad wanted to succeed him, and how in helping Muawiyah he had bought a measly two years as governor with an eternity in hell. Many narrations about Muawiyah make him out as vain, power-hungry, and cruel. It's reading material like this that we especially need to keep in mind that it's coming from an accumulation of stories much of them told generations after the fall of a dynasty built by Muawiyah, in an age where people chafed under imperial rule and longed for the purity of a golden past. The Muawiyah being described in the 10th century is a villain for sure, although as always Al-Tabari's comprehensive account does have a bit of everything. The only unabashedly pro-Umayyad history I know of is Ibn Arabi's, who wrote a few centuries after our sources, 
and the modern pro-Umayyad sources I've come across all quote him heavily to construct a wise and virtuous Muawiyah. We cannot develop a more complete opinion of Muawiyah as a leader without covering the rest of his reign, and we don't really have the time for that today, but let's lay some groundwork before ending our episode. Muawiyah had earned great military legitimacy from his constant raids against the Byzantines while governor of Syria, but sometime around the first fitna, he agreed to a truce with Constantinople, which dictated he pay a tribute of 100,000 golden coins a year, an arrangement which went on for a while. Soon after the conclusion of his struggle against the Hashemites, however, Muawiyah resumed the hostilities against his favorite foe. In successive winter and summer raids, the Arabs pushed the Byzantines back further than they ever had before, and within a few years Constantinople itself would be in their sights. Already by 664, for example, the year Ziyad was made an Umayyad governor, about three years into Muawiyah's reign, Al-Tabari notes four raids into Byzantine territory, mostly led by the caliph's most famous loyalists, like Busur or Abd al-Rahman ibn Khalid ibn al-Walid, who was proving to be very much his father's son. By the time we are done with Muawiyah, it will become clear that despite sizable conquests in the east and west, his military priority would always be Constantinople. But we'll get to all this and more next time on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. <laughs>